Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer Chris Bradley. First of all, I bet you'd like to know what the breakout of a digital streaming dollar is. Canada just commissioned a huge study for the Department of Canadian Heritage, and it was conducted by economist Jerry Wall. What was found is that there's a hollowing out of the music middle class. Of course, this is nothing new. If you're in the music business, you kind of know that's happening. Also verified some other things that we already knew. For instance, you can expect somewhere between $4,000 and $5,000 per 1 million streams. And that sounds pretty good, except for the fact that the majority of artists don't ever reach a million streams, even in a year. Now, if we break down the digital streaming dollar, what we find out is 69% of it goes to labels. Only 17% go to artists. Publishers get about 8% and songwriters only 6%. Now, if we look at how this works, it's really a reflection of the structure of licensing deals, but it doesn't reflect the advances that artists and songwriters get. Labels normally take a financial risk when they give an advance to an artist. And as a result of this risk, they're going to take more of the money. That being said, 69% seems to be pretty excessive. Now, of course, the labels say the study is flawed and is filled with omissions and inaccuracies. But Wall says that the labels refuse to share any of their data, which is kind of normal for these kind of studies, kind of normal for the way the industry works. But... The study actually follows an inquiry by the British government into its own music industry, and what it found was pretty much the same results. And they eventually called for a complete reset of the streaming industry. I don't know that that's going to happen, because when it comes down to it, all the streaming services are actually losing money. Now, for Amazon and for Google and for Apple, it doesn't really matter because what they lose is kind of a rounding error. But for the indie streaming services like Spotify, Deezer, Tidal is another one, they can't afford to lose any more money. And in fact, they're already paying about 80% of what they get out in royalties. What you have to realize is, is it's the record labels that are making all the money here and nobody else. When they come away with 69% of the total from streaming, then you know that there's something wrong. So if you're not making enough money from streaming, don't blame the streaming services. Blame the labels. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now here's a move that I can't say was unexpected. NAM has postponed the winter NAM show held in Anaheim from January to next June. And they did this over health and safety issues. As a matter of fact, most vendors, most exhibitors... We're actually pretty happy with this. I think everybody was kind of afraid to go to yet another conference where there might be a big spread of the virus. 
So this sort of eased everybody's mind. Now, just keep in mind that the last time there was a NAMM show in Anaheim was January 2020, and it was the largest one ever. It had over 116,000 attendees and about 7,000 brands. This last year, 2021, instead of a live event, it was a live-streamed event, and they had 93,000 attendees from 187 countries. This is going to happen once more, where NAM is going to have a live stream event on January 21st. It's only going to be for a day, though, but the real event is going to be June 3 to 5. Now, you got to look at this and say, well, wait a second, what is a trade show actually for anyway? Well, to some extent, it's kind of outlived its usefulness. It's not only NAM, it's all of them. Once upon a time, this is the only place that you can go to see brand new products anymore. You can see everything you need and find out everything you need to know online. And you find out instantly as soon as the manufacturer is even thinking about releasing it. So what do we get out of a trade show? Now it's a personal experience. You go there to meet people, maybe make business deals, and to just meet some old friends. So on that basis, it's a shame to have to wait another six months to meet some old friends. On the other hand, it's better to be safe than sorry. My guest this week is Chris Bradley, who's a songwriter-producer with credits that include Sony BMG, Warner Chapel, Rolling Stone, Fox, Lincoln, and Miramax. She heads Boom Fox Productions, producing for various sync projects, artists, and songwriters. Chris is also the founder of Produce Like a Boss, which is an online coaching program geared towards a songwriter-producer rather than the engineer. Her non-techie and simplified style of teaching is helping artists learn how to produce their own music. During the interview, we spoke about playing in a cover band in Asia, rebranding herself for production, her approach to communicating with artists, trends in production, and much more. I spoke with Chris via Zoom from her studio in San Diego. Take me back to the beginning when you first started in music. All the way back to the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. So, um... My mom had me when she was pretty young. So we grew up with my great grandma um, for the first like eight or 10 years of my life. We lived with my great grandmother. So I grew up on jazz standards and swing and big band. And I started playing piano. I think I learned in the mood on the piano by ear, like before I was even five, because that was my favorite song she played all the time. So music has just been in my, my life since I was pretty much born. And my mom, you know, being young and wild and, <laughs> uh, in the 80s was super into like 80s rock, but also like 70s rock. So I got a lot of like Led Zeppelin and Heart and these really cool like 70s rock influences all the way into like Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue, you know. So I'm a, a smorgasbord of music is where I kind of came from. Um, started piano lessons when I was five and then, um, you know, I really, I've, I always kind of fought like traditional music. Like when I was in piano lessons, I'd get in trouble because I'd start playing things by memory and by ear and they could tell that I wasn't reading the music. And I just always felt to, I uh, felt called to play by ear. So I always kind of pushed against that. So once we finally moved out of the house with my great grams, uh, my mom said, do you want to continue uh, in piano lessons? And I said, no, not really. And so I kind of, you know, drifted away from music for a little bit, came back to it with the guitar, started picking that up and learning songs and playing by ear and um, really kind of a late bloomer to songwriting or creating anything original because that's not really what I learned. I learned how to play what the greats played. You know, I was learning Bach and Beethoven and Glenn Miller and stuff like that and 
that was, it kind of gave me almost like a complex for a little bit where I was like, man, I could, I could never write songs. Like there was nobody in my family that had done anything like that. So I didn't really get into songwriting until I got into my twenties. Although I had always been a musician, you know, but it always kind of led me to do kind of cover band things. Even I was, you know, in a heart tribute band, I was in a Led Zeppelin tribute band. And then I even did, um, a, like a top 40 cover band in uh, overseas in Asia for a year, you know? So, I mean, I, I always wanted to play music, but it, like creating, a, you know, original music was something I didn't get to probably until like my mid twenties. And and a big thing for me that, that drew me to that, first of all, I knew I had a voice and I had something I wanted to say. I knew I loved music and that I was more than the cover band kind of stuff that I was doing. Right. So I, I got drawn to Pat Patterson's work actually, and started learning about object, object writing. And that led me to other things. And I realized, oh my gosh, songwriting is a craft, just like anything else. I can learn this. I can get better at this. And it's, it's okay that I'm not naturally um, a good songwriter. And if I'm willing to put in the work, I can get better. And so that just really grabbed my attention. And I went down the rabbit hole, super passionate about songwriting, realized that's what I actually wanted to do. And while I've been on stages all these years and been singing, that I had this real, real desire to write and be behind the scenes. So um, I started writing a lot and then, you know, I wanted to invest in myself. So I was hiring producers left and right. And all of a sudden I, I you know, moved to Nashville because I wanted to write more and now I'm writing more and now I'm paying more. And all of a sudden, like my demos I, were costing more. It, I, my songwriting, I couldn't keep up with that habit because the demos were costing me too much. <laughs> And, uh, and then I kind of stumbled into learning how to produce my music um, by necessity because I couldn't afford to hire out producers anymore. So I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach myself how to, how to do this. And there's a lot of trial and error because I am wired like a songwriter. And I think very much like as a songwriter and not an engineer, I'm not very tech brained. And so when I would reach out to other producer friends and engineer peers, I, I got kind of talked down to a lot and maybe not even intentionally, but just maybe the way their brains were wired. They always kind of spoke with this uh, in a very techie way. So it, it took a lot longer than I think it needed to for me to learn how to do this. And uh, by the time I, I did get pretty decent at it, I was able to make my own demos and I was able to save some money on that. But also people started hiring me to do their demos which is so ironic because I was the songwriter that couldn't afford to have their demos done. And now here I am demoing other songwriters uh, songs. And then that kind of led to a couple of things. Um, like all of a sudden a song that I did a demo on got placed in, you know, movie. And I'm like, well, that's not a demo <laughs> or I'm sorry. Yeah. In a movie at the ending credits. And then um, an artist came to me and said, I really love the work you're doing. Can you produce a record for me? And I'm like, wait a second, did I become a producer by, by, accident here because <laughs> really the intention was to do demos to pitch my songs at first and then um and then I just kind of fell in love with it and then after that I realized as I was mentoring artists and, and producing artists in my studio in Nashville at the time I was teaching them how to record and engineer themselves and even how to get their ideas out their rough ideas out on MIDI and stuff and they were like wow you're really good at explaining this in a way that I can understand because I've tried to learn this from school like I went to school for this and took a production class and I just never got it and I think I just kind of, you know, they say when, when you get good at teaching something, it's usually because you had a hard time with it. So I think I just found a language to communicate with other songwriters. <laughs> and then that's how Produce Like a Boss was born, which is um, the company that I have today where I'm teaching songwriters how to produce their own music. Well, I want to get to that in a second, but let's go back for a second. You said you played in a cover band in Asia for yeah. a year. I, I have to hear about that. Yeah, sure. So I was in a, it was like a top forties, five piece band. 
and we played at the Hilton and the Hyatt for like six months contracts, each one. And it was funny because I was the rock girl. Where at? Oh, uh, in Malaysia and Bangkok. Bangkok, Hyatt, Malaysia, Hilton. And it was so funny because I had come back from the Zeppelin tour and I knew I wasn't done touring, but I also knew that my I didn't have original music that was ready to tour with or even make a record with. I was still, I was still just doing the cover band thing. And I said, it's, it's amazing how when you hyper-focus and you put something out into the universe, how just opportunities will fall into your lap. So I got home from this, this tour and all of a sudden I've got this opportunity to audition through video for this overseas cover band and it's all pop. And I'm like, I'm the rock girl. I am the rock blues girl. This is like the anti me. They, they even said you had to be able to dance and you had to be able to do backgrounds. And I knew how to harmonize. So that wasn't an issue, but I'd never written parts. I wasn't like a, you know, a super trained singer and I had surely never danced. <laughs> or wore, they even said you got to wear heels you know i'd never worn heels but i still felt compelled to do this and i'll tell you what it was like it's funny because these these hotels were so nice we had room service we got to eat the fancy food every day and i ended up calling it a five-star prison because it was just like oh my god what did i do when i got there because it was so outside of my comfort zone but i probably grew more in that year um than you know exponentially anyways, in that year, just from being so far outside of my comfort zone, you know? Yeah. So we, yeah, we did all the top 40 stuff. We had that dinner set, which was the first kind of mellow set, which had the more, you know, kind of classic tunes that are a little jazzy in nature, you know, and then we just went right into the Katy Perry meets, you know, Neo meets this, you know, just super high energy. Um, not a lot of rock. I, you know, they, it's funny. I'd be like the token rock girl. They'd be like, okay, and now we're going to do zombie by the cranberries. And they'd hand me a guitar and I'd come out and do that song. And then we'd go back to doing straight pop, you know? But um, yeah, I learned how we also had two other singers. So, I mean, at least with four hours a night and six nights a week, I wasn't the only singer. There was two others and, um, and they were gospel singers and they were amazing. And here's my little rock and roll, but just like, oh my gosh, it, it was so what a way to get your ass handed to you and just grow so much. I think I, I think I also, that was, I didn't know it, but it was introducing me to how to write for a market, you know, because it made me a stronger songwriter because by the time I came back, I had learned so many top 40 songs that it just became a part of my, it was in my blood at that point, you know? Yeah. I grew up playing in uh, top 40 bands before my band got a record deal. Back then though, you can make a really good living doing it. And we we're doing all one-nighters for the most part. But I always felt that you never have chops like when you're playing four sets a night. You yeah. just don't. Yeah. That being said, sometimes your chops aren't as precise as they need to be because when we made that first record, I thought I was pretty good. We went in the studio, a big fancy New York studio, and I got my ass handed to me there where it was like, oh, I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. <laughs> And also the thing about it is you do that fourth set on, if you're doing five nights during the week, the last night, you're like, oh, I can't wait until this is over. And, and you know, you're doing it almost by rote. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I definitely, I mean, I wasn't on fire about it the whole time. I kid you not when I said five-star prison, because there was a part of me that was just really mailing it in at certain points through exhaustion. Yeah. You know, and then when we finally got that one day off a week, it's not like I was, and I thought to myself, I'm going to go see the world. I'm going to be in Thailand. I'm going to be in Malaysia. By the time you get that day off, you just want to sleep. Yeah. You, know, you really, and, and it's, you know, you don't really want to spend the time to go. It's also kind of, you know, emotionally um, draining too, to just go out and kind of be in a, in a third world by yourself. It's, it's a little bit more adventurous than you want for your one day off a week. So 
while we did get get out and get to see the town and stuff, it, we didn't go out as much as I thought we would because we just needed that rest. Where were you in Malaysia? Mm, I remember it was the Hilton. Oh, gosh. Kuala Lumpur. Am I saying that? Kuala correctly? Lumpur. Okay. Yeah. KL. Yeah. I actually really like Kuala Lumpur. The raised sidewalks downtown, I thought were fantastic. And nobody ever talks about that. You know, I don't even remember that part of it. Maybe they weren't there. This was a while ago when you were there, right? Yeah, this would have been about 12 or 13 years ago. Yeah, I was there a few years ago. And they have these raised sidewalks that are about 15 feet over the real sidewalk. And they're totally air-conditioned. And you can walk around the city. Like okay, that. I would remember that. <laughs> it was totally amazing. Yeah, that would have been helpful. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you know, because it's so humid there, you know, if you do any walking at all, you're soaked. But in these raised sidewalks, it wasn't the case. It was very cool. Yeah, that's what I remember about it. In Bangkok and Malaysia, just like wanting to be adventurous and get out there. And it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. I'm so hot, you know. And Tell me about Boom Fox Productions. Yeah. So um, when I get into, when I got into making, um, making these demos and, you know, turning this into a business where people were hiring me, I realized that just doing it under my name, Chris Bradley, um, you know, didn't really feel, first of all, I had an artist identity associated with that. And I really wanted to separate my brands. So I created Boom Fox Productions first, actually, it was, uh, it was Chris Bradley Productions. And then I decided, you know, let's just take Chris Bradley out of it and make that a separate brand. So I created Boom Fox Productions to kind of house all the projects I was doing as a producer and keep it separate from artist stuff. Is that still going? Yes, it is. At this point, we've like I've kind of branched out too. I've, I'm even doing things like beat licensing and creating tracks ahead of time for artists that they can lease at a at a lower rate. That sometimes just works better for both parties, you know, because the artist can say, "Hey, I really like this track. Can I just lease it from you?" And then we, you know, come up with some terms that are agreeable, and you know, we're not doing the whole um, "I'm producing the project" so much as I've produced a track and now they're going to purchase it and maybe even take it to their producer. So there's a couple different legs. And I, I also have other producers that work with Boom Fox Productions that I will, you know, outsource to depending on the project. All right. So produce like a boss. Let's get into that. Tell me more about it. Sure. Sorry. You asked me for the beginning and I took you from the beginning all the way to, yeah. or to, to the end. But yeah. So where I'm at now is I've got a uh, produce like a boss. I started in November of 2019 and, um, it's so funny. I was just going to create, you know, it started with the artists that I was mentoring saying, you should really teach this. You're really good at breaking this down in a way I can understand. And I thought, okay, I'll make some videos and maybe I'll, maybe I could put it up on YouTube and then I can share it, you know? And I was thinking best case scenario, maybe um, I'll get some followers and that'll create brand awareness for Boom Fox Productions. And maybe I'll get some more clients. And I had no idea. It's funny. At the same time, a publisher friend of mine in Nashville was like, oh, you know what? You should read this book called Launch by Jeff Walker. Mm. And it really introduced me into the online courses world and digital marketing and and all of that. And then I went, oh, okay. And then and then I, you know, once again, the universe kind of put something right in front of me, which is, I don't know if you know Bill O'Hanlon. No, I don't know. I was introduced to Bill O'Hanlon, who was my first coach in in the digital marketing space. and um, And he's actually very close with Jeff Walker. And um, he helped to guide me through the process of, you know, what was going to be a few YouTube videos into a fully fleshed out course. And um, it was one of those things where I just thought, you know, I probably know a handful of people this could really help. But, you know, we got into a launch mode and um, I was able to partner up with a couple of people who thought might it might be a good fit for their audience as well. And it took off a lot faster um, than, than I thought it would. And it turned out, you know, just as I was getting to know my students and seeing what they were saying, that this is exactly what a lot of people wanted and needed. And, um, you know, 
some of my students were reporting anything from, oh my gosh, I was able to, you know, communicate better with my producer. And now I can send stems back and forth because I know what I'm doing to, oh my gosh, I released my first song to, oh my gosh, I got this song placed. And now, you know, we're able to see success for them. And, you know, now some of them are, are making, you know, a living doing session work from home and, and, and creating, you know, productions for other people. So i have just, I, it's, it still kind of blows my mind, you know, because the intent, I don't even think I was able to dream big enough for it at first. Now I've got some bigger moonshot goals for it. <laughs> but when I was first starting, I'm like, yeah, maybe a few people could use this. And it's like, whoa, we just, we just actually passed over a thousand students a couple months ago. Oh, congratulations. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you. Is it a membership? So my, I actually have multiple courses that I've created. And the first one was called From Voice Memo to Demo. And that's the one that I launched um, initially in, in November of 2019. And then after that, I realized there were some other steps, you know, so I created Write Like a Boss um, because a lot of the work I get online is actually people just hiring me to top line to tracks. Um, and so I thought, you know, that's its own process. Let's just make a course on that. And then um, the most recent course that I have, which is releasing in September is called Home Studio Boss. And that's where I'm teaching them how to turn this into a business because the truth is, is if you can record and produce from home, you, there's such a there's a plethora of jobs that you can do. You know, anywhere from editing a podcast to creating a jingle, to you know, film and TV and sync placements, to producing your own records or producing for other people. But in order to do that, you kind of have to do what I did, and this goes back to Boom Fox Productions. You have to be able to kind of create a. You have to create. No, you got to know your business. And you got to be able to create systems and have a workflow that allows you to be able to deal with clients and collect payments and you know, conduct yourself like a professional, you know, through your correspondence. And, you know, our first, I think when we're wanting to make money with this, the first concern is like, I just want to have enough clients to pay my bills. And then it becomes, I just want to have a life and I need to know how to balance these projects. Right. Because, you know, at first you're just so happy for the work. You want to do everything yourself. But what happened with me with Boom Fox is I started getting enough things in my pipeline that I went, okay, how do I run a business here? Because this doesn't make sense anymore. Wolfgang Puck is not standing at the head of the restaurant going, let me seat you and let me clean your dishes and let me serve you. And then I'm also going to cook it. So I said, how can I make this work? So, and I explained this to my students. I'm like, if you have one job in the pipeline and that job is to do vocals and it costs you $50 to get the vocals edit, edited, but you're only charging 150 and you only have one job, do all the work yourself. But if you have 10 vocal projects on your board and you know, you've got to get your vocals edited and tuned, it makes way more sense for you to show up and do the only thing that you can do. And now we outsource that, that, that thing, you know? So I'm teaching a lot of similar uh, principles around that approach to workflow and building a production business in my new course, Home Studio Boss. Well, now I have four main courses, one little mini course, but to be honest, I think the mini course that I have, we're going to take down once we launch this new one, because this is just a big dive on that. Um, in between from voice memo to demo, and uh, Home Studio Boss I and Write Like a Boss, I also created one called Beat Making for Songwriters. Mm, that's good. Yeah, that was really, um, that was our, our, our best launch yet, was that one. Yeah, I bet. What's your demographic? I bet I know what it is, but go ahead. You know, I would say that it's probably between 35 and 50. And while it appears in some regards to be leaning more towards the female and it, I guess it is as far as students, but like, as far as like my podcast and some other things go, it's very close. It's actually kind of right down the middle, but I would say it's probably um, like, what is it? It's like a 60, 40, as far as my students, there's a lot of male students. So I get the impression that you're somewhat comfortable around whatever is technical, but that being said, you're not a particularly technical person. 
No, I'm not. I'm still not very, I mean, I've obviously gotten more comfortable with certain things and, and there were certain things that I went, you know, like for example, I started studying synthesis and sound design. And I was like, you know, I really, cause I, gosh, I, you know, I, I have a desire to learn. I'm a hard worker. I've got this great ethic and I just, you know, work ethic. And I would just sit down with it and I would feel so bamboozled. And eventually I went, how is this moving the needle on my business? And can I reach for a preset and tweak that preset to get close to the sound that I want? And is that going to do the job? And if I really needed to, could I just hire a synth player for this? And is that more suited and more worth my time than me spending the hours and hours it takes to get good at this? So I've made you know those decisions to, <laughs> to compensate for where I'm not, still not very technical. You know? Now, the reason why I bring that up is, so then your approach to production must come from the same place, which I think makes a lot of people comfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the, the things that a lot of teachers do, and maybe even universities, from what I understand, is they approach it from a, let's talk about what all these things are and try to give these full definitions of them. For example, like let's study what a sample rate is and what a waveform is and how EQ works and how compression works. And you got a student there who's you know, maybe they're just sitting there going, I just want to write songs. And this doesn't make sense to them yet because there's no context, right? So I never taught, I never approached teaching this in that way where I'm going to say, you need to know all this stuff before we jump in. It's like saying you need to know how to take apart the engine of a car to drive it. There's a lot we can do without you actually needing to know that. And don't worry, because when we get to that part in the song where it's muddy and it's unclear, now you're really going to know what EQ is when I explain it to you rather than me trying to explain it to you before you know. That's like trying to explain what swimming is to somebody. Just throw them in the pool. And then you're like, hey, here's how you don't die. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. When you were at your peak in terms of production work, were your productions mostly electronic by nature or were you getting players in and producing them like a like a band yeah i did a little bit more of that in nashville but i've always been primarily an in-the-box producer and working remotely with session players that are going to engineer and send me their own files i've I've only had there was there was a moment too where i was sharing a space with somebody over at rca in nashville and that was really cool to be able to to do that um but yeah primarily been in the box because it's a different skill, production with people. Mm, all of a sudden, you're a diplomat, you're a psychologist. Not to say that you don't do that otherwise, because you do, but it's a lot more immediate sometimes that you have to <laughs> do that stuff. Well, and even when I was working with artists, um, especially in Nashville, and they would come over, we still had that relationship. You know, we were just working out of my home studio, but it was the same, you know, psychological and, you know, um, approach and you know i would never talk to a an artist the way i would talk to a session player Mm. now i would talk to everybody with kindness but i know that with a session player i can go hey that thing you did right there not so sure about that let's try this and they're going to go oh okay because they're a pro and an artist might be shattered if you talk to them that way so it definitely yeah there's there's a huge there's a big difference and i i think just the word producer has developed so much over the years and it's like now taking on so many different forms because Obviously, I mean, for me, when I pull back from it and the way I explain it is I'm like a, a producer is a visionary, whether you touch a board or an instrument or not, you know, you've got the Rick Rubin who's just in the room and, and being that figure who doesn't actually move any knobs or play any instruments. And then you got the Quincy Jones, right? But it's like you fast forward to today and you've got people and not just kids, you know, that can make a hit on a laptop. <laughs> yeah, It's crazy, you know? So I think it's just understanding what the role is in every project. Now, that being said, what is your platform of preference and what do you show people just in general terms? And where do you take them from? 
use Ableton or Pro Tools or Logic or? Logic is my DAW of choice. Um, and that's what I'm teaching people in. But I'm also teaching in a way that says like, hey, these are all principles um, that can be applied in any DAW. So even in the newest course we made, I had several other experts come in and do intros to different DAWs so that they say, hey, when Chris does this, that just means this for you. Mm. Um, so it's my courses aren't logic specific, but that's the DAW of my choice. I feel like Apple really nailed it when they spoke to the singer songwriter with this. It's very plug in and play. I love Pro Tools. I was actually engineering with Pro Tools in Nashville in, in the RCA studio um, for editing, comping, playlisting, and some other things where the grid is just like, oh, it's it's so, I just like it. <laughs> but uh, for everything else, including the plug and play aspect, Logic just does it for me. So I always felt the same where the creation aspect of Logic can't be beat. It's just so easy to create. I show everybody on Pro Tools, but again, I try to make it as generic as possible where it's like, well, this is what we do here, but really it's transferable anywhere, any platform that you have. Totally. Do you see a trend in production that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, I see. I see lots of trends. One particularly that, um, you know, three. it used to be 3.30 and then it was like, ah, 3.30, 245 is the new 3.30. Even that I'm seeing songs that are under two minutes that are climbing the charts, which is just, wow. You know, talk about you know, that short attention span, but I think it just really goes to show, you know, just where, like what consumers are wanting to consume these days. You know, it's something to keep in mind, especially as I'm creating music for stuff. And as students are creating music and asking me, what do you think? It's like, well, we have to take a different approach now because there's still people telling them, oh no, your song's supposed to be 3.30. And I'm like, actually, that's pretty dated, you know, at this point. Not that there aren't songs that are 3.30, but like there's definitely room for shorter songs. Yeah, it's funny because for years and years and years, you had the traditional song form where there'd be an intro and it would be a verse, chorus, and there'd be an interlude someplace, a bridge, then there'd be a solo, no more solos, you might not have a bridge at all. There's no intro and outro for the most part. It's just completely different. So you've already collapsed it that way. Ooh, you know what else I'm noticing? I'm sorry, I have to say this because I haven't said it out loud yet. And I just thinking this the other day, second verses, so many of them are not following the same rhythm or melody as the first. It's almost like the, the features that they're bringing in on their songs are just kind of like, oh, second verse, I'm going to just do whatever I want. Like if you listen to Peaches, uh, it's Justin Tim uh, not Timberlake, Justin Bieber, and uh, I forget the, the, the feature but completely different melody. And it's not the first time I'm hearing this and I'm hearing artists do it even that don't have a feature where they're just taking a different, almost like the first two is a bridge. It used to be the way you changed the second verse was you'd introduce more elements, more mix elements, or you'd subtract right. them. So there was something different or you, you know, you'd put uh, some ear candy in somewhere. Yeah. I, I'm hearing it with the melody now more than ever, you know? And then of course, you know, uh, the drop, which has been happening for a long time, where big courses are not the thing anymore. Another thing that I feel like I'm hearing students are getting coached on a lot is like, oh, my, all my courses need to be so big. And it's like, first of all, we've got drops now. So you're pre that build, you know, before the drop comes is technically kind of the course, you know, mm. um, but also you've got like lots of songs that when they get to the course dynamically, if there is a course, it's not huge and it works because it's all about groove. Yeah. Have you heard that song? I got no roots, but my home is never on. You know, like that does not lift dynamically hugely um, in the course, but it works. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very popular. Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. Songwriting, especially the approach to songwriting is so different. Now, are you in Nashville now? 
No, I'm in, in San Diego now. Oh, okay. A nice place. In Nashville, I'm curious, what is the approach to songwriting? Is it still kind of traditional or are they looking at what's going on? Well, I've been out of Nashville for a year. And um, even when I was there, I would say the last two years I was there, I'd kind of gone more internally and started to do things online, moved more towards pop and away from country. But I feel like Nashville is very much kind of keeping its eye on what the country charts are doing um, when you're when you're in those rights. Um, there's this thing called, I call it the Nash half, where the second time around, you're getting rid of the long verse or the, the long pre, but you might introduce that the first time around. I noticed that commonly. And I, I also noticed that, you know, it used to be like songwriters could write a great song and then a great artist that couldn't write would come and they would get that song. And now all the A&R is pushing the artist into every room because of 360 deals and they just want a piece of everything. So even if that artist isn't really a skilled songwriter, um, they're getting into the room. And it's not just because we want to tell their story and they, they need help, which I totally get. Um, but it's more or less like they're just going to be in there because they they want to make sure they're getting to cut of the song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When you're teaching people about how to make money, what would be the first thing that they would have to do? Yeah, I'd say the first thing they have to do is is perfect their craft. Let's rewind a little bit more. First thing they got to do is work on their mindset because you cannot build a house on a shaky foundation, right? So, and this goes for songwriting, this goes for producing, this goes for artists, you know, pursuing an artist career. It's like you really got to have your your head on your shoulders, right? Because if you're, if you're dealing with things like procrastination and imposter syndrome, and I don't think I'm good enough, I mean, all that stuff, you may as well just, nothing else even matters. It doesn't matter how good you are, right? So mindset first. Second is, is, setting, is arming yourself with the tools that it takes, whether that be building your home studio or building your craft. You need to make sure that you're set up with the proper tools and that you've armed yourself with the right knowledge, right? So there is, a, and just to sidetrack for a second, I feel like with all the information coming at people in the music space right now online, it's really easy, especially with like, oh my gosh, the gold rush of like, oh, everyone's getting their music into film and TV. You see everyone running towards it like, yeah. And they're not thinking about the other things they need to have in order first. And that's one of the things we talk about in Home Studio Boss is the is the blueprint of like, what, what steps do you have to take before you're marketing and selling? Because you don't start marketing and selling and getting placements before you've accomplished a few other things. So mindset um, dialing in your tool belt, cataloging. You got to write way more songs than you're going to monetize. And you got to be okay with a lot of them sounding like crap because that's the only way you're going to sound good, right? So it's like build that catalog. So, you know, the same way you get into a, when you go to pick songs for your album, you don't write five songs for an EP. You write 25 songs and then you pick five songs, right? So you create a whole lot of music, right? Then at, you got to get into, okay, how can I systemize this? You know, how can I, how can I leverage the talents of others, right? Meaning I'm not the greatest guitar player. I don't like to tune my vocals. Okay. I can outsource those things and come up with a system. I like to talk about project management as well to keep track of everything, but also hopping on the coattails of successful platforms that are already attracting your ideal customer, right? So it's like you signed up to be a producer. Great. And then to make money, but not to be a Facebook ads expert or a Google SEO expert. So while I'm a big fan of building your own brand eventually, I think a really good place to start is getting into websites like SoundBetter and Airbit and, and uh, BeatStars. And, and there's a ton of them online where you can start making money and they'll take a fee and they're pretty strict. They don't want you taking business off their platform. But what you get in exchange is you get those five-star reviews coming in. You get a client you know, relationships coming in and you learn a lot about how to build your own business. As a producer, how do you feel that you've been treated because you're female? 
you know, as a producer, I don't feel like I've I've been really treated super uh, super poorly just because I'm a woman. I have a very very st- I kind of have a very strong uh, I wouldn't say male energy, but just that that you know we all have female and, and male energy, right? And I'm very assertive and I'm very um, I wouldn't say like aggressive, but I'm assertive and and. I feel that when I was learning how to produce, when I was a student, and I'm always, I'm, I'm a lifelong student, but when I didn't know anything, the way that I was spoken town, down to by other people in the industry, when I was trying to learn, that's where I really felt like, and I wasn't sure if it was because I was a newbie or because I was a woman, but that's where I really felt the the discrimination of like, oh, you're just a girl. You know, I remember I dated guys that were like, you should just like stick to what you're good at. Like, why do you go to, I actually had a guy I dated told me, why do you got to always pick jobs that are made for men? Hmm. You know, but it's interesting because once I got through that hump and I, I was actually just producing and, and doing this for a living, like I didn't really feel like I faced a lot of discrimination. How about your students? Do they feel that? Your women students? Yeah. I'm not hearing it from them if they are. You know, I think that a lot of reason that women sometimes do not get an opportunity is because they don't go for the same opportunity. So we can't complain that we don't get things that men get when we don't sign up for the th- same things men do. You know, men get paid more than women. Yeah, well, men ask for raises more than women do. Okay, so like that's what I mean by I have this kind of like you know assertive personality, and so I'm not experiencing this because I'm not inviting it. I don't sit around and wait for things to happen. I make things happen, and I, you know, I feel like that's just you know if I think if more women would do that, they'd find more opportunities open up to them. Last question, Chris. What's the best piece of business advice that either you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Yeah, as it pertains to this this business of producing and starting a business from your home studio, it would be start with what you're good at. When I first started, you know, you're trying to learn everything, the DAW, engineering, like all the what do all the plugins do? And I wanted to do everything. And I remember a friend saying to me, just start with what you're good at. You're already a killer singer. Like he's like, anyone would be happy to have you sing on their projects. Make sure you know how to properly gain stage your vocals. Don't even worry about like producing vocals. He's like, learn, start with what you're good at. Because if you're already 80% the way there, because the talent's there, it's going to be a lot easier for you to just fill in the gaps. So I tell my students the same thing, like wherever you're already, you know, whether it's songwriting or singing or guitars, Let's get you getting that sounding killer first and then get everything else to fall into place. You can find out more about Chris and her production company at boomfoxproductions.com. That's boom, B-O-O-M, Fox, F-O-X, productions, all one word, dot com. And you can find out about her courses at producelikeaboss.com. That's produce like a boss, just the way you hear it, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.